You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Thank you, Morgan, for that introduction. Good morning. As he mentioned, my name is Tina Miranda, and I am one of the deacons here. And I am thrilled, honored, blessed, privileged, all the things to get to be here with you this morning. Those of you on our North Campus, everyone at Mosaic South, and those of you watching online, thank you so much for being here this morning. So we are in week three of a four-week series, you just saw the little bumper for it, Stories, Everybody's Got One, in which we are exploring four stories in the Old Testament and looking at how these stories are part of something larger, and that's God's story. And then we're looking at how these stories can influence and speak to our own stories, which if you didn't already know, are also part of God's story. So far, we've been in Genesis with Abraham and Lot. We've been in Judges with Gideon. And this morning, we're going to jump on over to 2 Kings to a story about Elisha and a poor widow. And we are going to take on a rather persistent and pernicious issue, poverty. Could be worse, y'all. Could be suffering. All right. We're just talking about poverty this morning. And when I say take on, I don't mean to suggest that we are going to solve world hunger in a 25-minute Sunday morning sermon, right? Poverty is not an easy issue. It's actually very complex. It's multi-layered. It has been researched, studied, debated over, written about, and lectured on from just about every conceivable angle. And yet still, 20% of the world's population including 10% of people here in the U.S. live in poverty today. So what I would like to do this morning is to wrestle with this topic together, to sort of press into it, to try to push ourselves forward. And one of the best ways that I have found to wrestle with a topic is to ask questions. So we're going to do that. You're going to get more questions than you are answers this morning. We're going to ask questions of ourselves, of each other's, of the scriptures. And asking questions is actually a very classical way of teaching. And when I say classical, I mean all the way back to Socrates in ancient Greek. That's why we call it the Socratic method. It is how I was taught in law school. It is how I often teach my students And it is apparently how I was teaching my children. And I say apparently because I didn't actually realize this until my daughter was five years old. And one day I asked her a very simple question. I said, Emmy, what is your favorite animal? And she looks at me and she says, Mom, what do you think my favorite animal is? 10 minutes and 152 questions later, I learned that her favorite animal is the red panda. (laughs) Now, somewhere about the seven minute mark, I stopped her and I said, Emmy, why can't you just tell me what your favorite animal is? And she rolls her eyes and she looks at me, she's like, mom, because I need you to figure it out. (laughs) 
So many things, y'all, about my children became clear in that moment because nobody tells you that teaching your children to think critically at an early age is gonna backfire on you spectacularly. My children are now teenagers. It's not going well. It's not going well. But in all seriousness, though, we were very intentional in our parenting about leaving space for them to ask questions, search out answers and solutions on their own. Now, this can be a bit of a meandering, a lot messy way of parenting, but the truths that they eventually learned were grounded on something more than simply recitation of something they heard. And honestly, that is my hope for us this morning, that we can ask questions of ourselves and of scripture, that we can challenge our perspectives on poverty and encourage ourselves to become more personally engaged in the issue. Maybe even to the point where we're stepping a little bit outside our comfort zone. Anyone in? All right, and again, this is all to ensure that we are ever growing, y'all, ever maturing into what God asks of us as Christ's followers in responding to the poor and poverty. All right, so the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. What is the story that you tell yourself about poverty? And how we answer this question actually depends on how we answer a lot of other questions without even really realizing it. Like, who is poor? Why are they poor? How can they overcome their poverty? Where do we fit in this story? And what, if anything, should we be doing about poverty, whether our own or that of others? Now, if we consider this, what is the story we tell ourselves about poverty from a broad cultural perspective, which I think is the best place to start, then those of us living here in the U.S. have to account for something we call the American dream. Now, this is the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they are born into, can achieve their own version of success here in America, where upward mobility is possible for everyone. Now, the idea has probably been around much longer, but the phrase itself was coined by an American author and historian named James Truslow Adams in his 1931 bestseller, The Epic of America, in which he said this, the American dream is that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. It is a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are regardless of fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. So anchoring the story that many of us tell ourselves about poverty is the notion that America is a country that affords or should afford everyone the opportunity to turn poverty into plenty. Someone once put it this way, if America had a motto, it would be pull yourself up by the bootstraps, work harder than the next guy, have a goal, and achieve it. But the extent to which we as individuals actually subscribe to that belief is gonna depend on a lot of things. 
right, including other cultural influences, perhaps our ethnicity, certainly our own ideological perspectives and our personal experiences with poverty and success. And so what we find is that the story that we tell ourselves about poverty fall on a spectrum. And you guessed it, you know where we're going, right? You have a conservative perspective on one hand and a liberal perspective on the other. There is a political scientist from NYU who made this observation after studying both perspectives at length. He said this, what ultimately divides the two sides, I think, are unspoken images of who the poor are as people. Are they victims or explorers of society? What he's basically saying here is that what divides the two perspectives is the story that we tell ourselves about poverty. The story from the liberal perspective is that the poor are victims. They are products of social injustice. There are various barriers to opportunities. They are not to blame for their condition and not responsible for pulling themselves out of it. They recognize the inner insecurities that can result from poverty and see poor adults as psychologically overwhelmed, perhaps even disabled by their circumstances. The poor cannot be expected to pull themselves out of poverty without assistance. Conservatives, on the other hand, tell a different story. They view poor adults as capable and responsible for their own condition. They are fully able to support themselves without government assistance or programs. And according to the conservative perspective, these programs actually enable rather than assist and serve to perpetuate poverty. Conservatives view poverty from a more external perspective, focusing on behavior and potential of the individual rather than inner securities that the liberals view as crippling. So on one hand, liberals are more attuned to social inequities and more willing to offer assistance on the other conservatives, afford those in poverty more respect for their capabilities and overcoming it. And despite the fact that the balance of power here in the United States has flip-flopped back and forth multiple times in the last 50 years, the percentage of Americans living in poverty has remained stubbornly stable. There's some ups, When we have recessions, there's some downs, when we have economic booms. But there's really very little difference between the 12.6% of Americans living in poverty in 1970 and the 11.6% living in poverty in 2021. So this might be a really good time to get a different perspective, all right? So let's take a look at the issue from a biblical one, right? So we're gonna jump on into our text over in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons 
And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And so he said to her, there is not another one. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of the Lord, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your son can live on the rest. So this is the part where we get to ask questions of scripture. And there are a lot of really good questions that we could ask from this passage, but what I'd like to focus on this morning are questions about the responses that we see to poverty in these seven verses. Who responded to the widow's poverty? How did they respond? How do these responses inform the larger question that we're looking at here this morning on the story we tell ourselves about poverty? Now, in order to do this effectively, I feel like we gotta get something out of the way first because I'm fairly confident there's more than a few of us that when we were listening to that story got a wee bit distracted by trying to figure out from this story whether the Bible supports the conservative perspective (laughs) or the liberal one. I'm not alone, right? Is it society or the individual in this story that is responsible for the widow's poverty? Is the widow entitled to assistance? or required to employ her own efforts to overcome her circumstances. Come on, y'all, you know where I'm going. The answer to all of these questions is yes. Yes, right? The widow in this story owes a debt, right? She owes a debt, it's a legal debt that she's legally responsible for. It was taken out by her husband, even if for a very good reason, it was a loan that was taken out knowing that under the Mosaic law, that if that loan could not be repaid, that either the husband or the sons were going to become indentured servants being forced to work up to seven years to pay off the debt. There's definitely some individual responsibility here. At the same time, the widow is also a victim of social injustice and there are significant barriers to her ability to get out of poverty. In that culture at that time, There were few that were more vulnerable than the widow that we find in the story. Her husband is dead. Her sons, who might be able to work and help provide for her, are about to be taken away into slavery, leaving the widow with absolutely no means of supporting herself. 100% she needs Elijah's help. But the assistance that Elijah requires also includes effort and work on her part. She didn't just walk into her house and find a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. So if you're looking in the Bible for scripture, for supporting perspectives, whether it's conservative or liberal, you're gonna find it. Proverbs 10.4 tells us, lazy hands make for, pro- for poverty, excuse me, but diligent hands bring wealth. Keep going a few chapters later. In Proverbs 13.23, it says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. So we can certainly ask ourselves this morning whether the Bible supports the story we tell ourselves about poverty, but I think that perhaps a better question is asking ourselves whether the story we tell ourselves about poverty fits in God's story. So let's do that. And in order to do it, we're gonna look at, take a quick look at three responses that we see here in this passage to the widow's poverty, starting with Elisha's response. Verse one tells us that the widow comes to Elisha about her poverty and we see his response in verse two. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Elisha's response 
is one of compassion. He goes beyond mere sympathy, which is pity or feeling sorry for the widow, and even empathy, which is relating to or actually feeling the pain of the widow, to compassion. Because compassion is when you see someone else's suffering and you are motivated to alleviate it or relieve it. So yes, it's an emotional response, but it's an emotional response with an active component. What shall I do for you? How can I help? The word compassion actually comes from the Latin root pati, which means to suffer. And it comes from the prefix com, which means with. So you put those together, and compassion literally means to suffer with. So when Elijah encounters a widow in poverty, he doesn't launch into a philosophical debate about what policies are appropriate to get her out of poverty. He simply meets her in it with compassion. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't engage in political debate about policies surrounding poverty? No, right? As Morgan mentioned a little bit of it a couple weeks ago, we absolutely and should be involved and engaged in politics. But what we see from Elisha's response in the story shows us that we also need to be involved and engaged with people. Because for 40 million Americans, poverty isn't just a political issue. It's a very personal one. And so when we go back to the story that we tell ourselves about poverty, I think the question we need to ask is whether there is a place in our story for a personal, not just political response. And then what does that look like for us? Now, corporately, here at Mosaic, it looks like the Mosaic Street Ministry, our Mosaic Mentor Program at a local elementary school, where many of the kids that we encounter are poor or living in poverty. It looks like our involvement in global missions, including the Viedo Project, right, and the Marcorius, I can't say that. Thank you. International, right? <laughs> and that, we do that corporately here at Mosaic, but here's the really amazing news, y'all, this morning. This is what you came to hear. There's also an opportunity for you as individuals to get involved. All right? Now, you can give. Giving is great. Mosaic is an amazingly generous church, and we do give, right? But if the point of this morning is to sort of press in and push ourselves forward, then perhaps getting personally involved and becoming engaged with these ministries and interacting with the people that we meet there is next level kind of great. All right? Okay, so let's pick our story back up in verse 5 and see the next response. Verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go and sell oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. God's response to the widow's poverty is pretty spectacular, right? He takes the very thing that represents her poverty, that represents how little she has in this world, a jar of oil, and he turns it into wealth. It's pretty amazing. And it's really easy 
when we're looking at this miracle, to focus on God's supernatural abundance, his provision, the fact that God provides for the widow, and all the ways that our faith, if it's expansive enough, we can collect all these empty vessels and make room for God's miracle in our own lives. Actually, yes and amen to all that, right? Yes and amen, right? However... I do think that it doesn't fully capture the essence of the miracle that God does here or his response to the widow's poverty. Remember, the widow is legally responsible for a debt that she can't pay. The law does not entitle, to her, entitle her to assistance. In fact, the law permits her son, sons, both of them, to be taken as indentured servants to pay the debt, leaving her with nothing. No means of survival, which means the law is essentially a death sentence for this widow. And in the story that we tell ourselves about poverty, the widow is either A, responsible for her own poverty and has to work it out on her own, or B, a helpless victim who's entitled to assistance. And from either perspective, the focus is on the individual's merit and entitlement. In God's story, his response C, right? None of the above, right? Grace, unmerited favor, undeserved assistance. Not just to save her, to pay her debt, but to sustain her and her sons, to continue to support them, to live off the rest. And I hope you see that this is not just God's response to the widow's poverty. It is also the gospel. This is God's response to our poverty, right? And he doesn't just have compassion and suffer with us like Elisha did the widow. He actually suffers for us instead of us. And not because we were entitled to it or because we worked hard enough to earn it, right? He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Our salvation, our miracle is grace alone, unmerited favor. I'm not just making this up, it's in the Bible. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. God's response, the grace that he showed the widow and later all of us through Christ forces us to ask ourselves another question, probably a little tougher of one. Where does the gospel fit in the story that we tell ourselves about poverty? We are entitled to nothing, earned nothing, but we're given everything. Is there space in our story for grace? Takes us up to the third and final response that we see here. And to find that, we're actually going to go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 1. It says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. 
but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slave. Here we see the widow's response to her own poverty. She's destitute, she's desperate, and out of that desperation, she cries out to Elisha, God's prophet, God's intermediary for help, for salvation really, because again, if her sons are taken for her, she's left with nothing. Now, we're ending here instead of starting here because what I want us to see this morning is that both Elisha and God respond to the widow's response. She cried out in her desperation and received compassion and grace in a way she could not have imagined. All right, this is actually a very visual picture of what Jesus teaches us over in Matthew 5, verse 3, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Greek word for kingdom is basileia. Did I say that right, Morgan? Okay. Which means this is all a product of his research. Thank you for sharing your paper with me. Um, which means <laughs> it was actually really good reading, y'all. It was really good. Um, and I asked for it. <laughs> but anyway, Basileia means reign, right? As in a specific place or territory where a ruler or king exercises his rulership. Okay, I don't have a lot of time to stay here, but I, got, I want you guys to really pay attention and think about this. Because what Jesus is saying is blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who are destitute and desperate, for theirs is the reign of heaven. For them, for those that are poor in spirit and destitute is where Jesus reigns and exercises his authority, where his power is evident, right? The widow responded to her poverty by bringing it to God. She brought her emptiness and it was into empty vessels, y'all, that the oil was poured. So now we gotta go back and look at the story right, that we tell ourselves about poverty. And there is an obvious tension that we have, that we navigate living in a culture that tells us we don't need to be poor and a God who tells us the opposite. And yes, I realize that I am conflating spiritual and financial poverty here, and I'm doing it on purpose because we absolutely have to wrestle with the tension between the two. Otherwise, what we find is that our political perspectives can start encroaching on our theology, right? And it starts hindering our ability to allow Christ to truly reign in our life, which is the blessing we were promised right? And as Christians, right, we quote scriptures and we sing songs that go like more of you and less of me, right? We sing that. We pray prayers of longing, asking God to move in our lives, to fill us up as he did those empty vessels. But I wonder if we have ever stopped to realize that what we are asking God for is to make us poor, and then I also wonder whether in light of the story that we tell ourselves about financial poverty, we'll actually allow him to do that. Will we allow ourselves to be poor, and I'm talking spiritually, empty, destitute, or both? Because I think a lot of times what we're doing is we find ourselves praying that prayer, right? God, fill us up with more of you, while at the same time begging God 
to intercede and take away or improve circumstances that are uncomfortable. Probably the very circumstances that he's trying to use to empty us so he can answer our prayer to be filled, right? So by allowing ourselves to be emptied, if we can do it, if we can recognize and embrace our spiritual poverty, right, then we can bring that poverty to God, crying out like the widow in this story, and the Bible promises us that God will meet us with grace and compassion. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the amazing thing is that when we allow ourselves to be emptied and continually experience God's grace and compassion, it becomes easier for us to suffer together with others who are poor, showing grace and compassion. So y'all, let's keep asking ourselves questions. Let's keep filling in the gaps of the story that we tell ourselves with poverty, allowing the gospel to add depth and perspective to that story in a way that pushes us, not just to engage politically, but also personally with people we meet in poverty. Again, responding with grace and compassion regardless of how they found themselves in those circumstances. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for the fact that our story is part of your story. Thank you for the fact that we can wrestle that it can be messy, that it can be meandering, that we can ask you questions, that you're not threatened or intimidated by our questions. God, I pray that would be, we would be a people who could ask questions of each other, that we could wrestle together, God, that it could be messy together in an effort to push ourselves forward, to love each other better, God, to minister to those that you have called us to minister better, those that are poor, not just financially, God, but spiritually. Lord, we love you. We say we are blessed. Lord, we want to be poor in spirit so we can receive the blessing of your reign in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.